Welcome to this episode of Naked Men Talking, a podcast exploring naturalism and the power of getting your clothes off. I'm Gareth Johnson. On today's episode, we're joined by Phil Samba. Working with organizations such as the Love Tank and Team Prepster, Phil is at the forefront of health access and advocacy for men in London. Phil, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, talk us through your career. Was health advocacy always something that was on your career vision board? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think um, I, like many activists, kind of fell into it um i i was i was a receptionist before i actually got involved in hiv and sexual health um but i always enjoyed uh writing um i always have since i was young and i kind of um i i always wanted to write but i didn't know how to get into it and then um as soon as i started getting involved with um the love tank it just started happening very naturally i started writing more articles um, I met my directors, Mark and Will, Mark Thompson and uh, Will Nutland um, at Black Pride in 2017. And they were giving out condom packs, um, which, and on the condom packs it said, um, there's a drug that stops you from getting HIV. Um, don't you think we should have it? Don't you think it should be available? I think it said. Um, obviously, that was about um, PrEP, which is um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and it's a drug you take before and after sex that stops you from getting HIV. And I think at that time, it wasn't widely available besides uh, maybe people buying it online. And I knew a lot about it at the time, but I knew that a lot of people around me didn't know about it. So I figured that I could use my social media and um, I guess my writing skills and things like that in order to get people in, like more switched on about what it was and then also help create a demand for it on the NHS. So yeah, I did. I absolutely had no intention to be an activist or to work in HIV and sexual health. But now I can't imagine my life not 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 of experiencing that. Yeah, there's an alternate reality where you didn't go to Black Pride that year and you did something completely different. Yeah, actually, I never thought about that. But um, it was also because um, Wireless Festival and Black Pride were on the same weekend around this time. This was a few years ago. And um, basically, I was leaving to go to Wireless because I had tickets for to see the weekend. And it just happened by chance. So it's crazy how... Like, it's kind of sliding doors, isn't it? <laughs> you are Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> I am. You mentioned that you do a lot of work around sexual health and uh, promoting access to, to sexual health services and STI screening. Are there any downsides to being the poster boy for STIs? Um, I think it's, it's less STIs, it's more prep. I think because of the time that I came into um, the HIV sector, it was at a time where we were actively trying to get PrEP on the NHS. So um, I've become the PrEP guy. So um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine stayed here. Um, he stayed here for like a weekend. And then um, he was talking to a guy on Grindr. And then um, he said to the guy, oh, I'm staying with my friend. And he, and then the friend was like, oh, um, that PrEP guy. <laughs> and I, I just, just I didn't, there's someone I did, I don't know. <laughs> identifying me as such was just a bit weird because I was like, that's how people see me. It's a compliment though, isn't it? I guess it's just, it's kind of a testament to all of the stuff that we've all done. Um, but it's just, it's just, I feel like um, 
sometimes that's all people expect from me. <laughs> yeah, there's more to me than just prep. <laughs> yeah, literally, very that. So um, I think it's 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 a bit of that. But um, generally, like that's the only thing I can think of. Um, the only other thing is that um, I guess is it can be quite tiring working in this field because um, it's like being a black person working for the health of black people. It does become very draining. Um, but other than that. Like, it's, it's so positive. And what have been some of the most successful sort of sexual health campaigns that you've seen? Particularly, I mean, talk about sort of hard-to-reach communities, but, I mean, that's kind of where you're working. What have been some of the most successful ways of reaching those people who don't normally access sexual health services? Um, So sometimes, um, like, I guess at the Love Tank, we try to say that there, there are no hard-to-reach, like, communities, but hard-to-reach services. Um, I would say that one of my the one of the the the, the things I'm most proud of was got to be um, me him us, which was technically not through the love tank, but um, <laughs> Mark Thompson um, Mark Thompson introduced well he um, I already knew uh, the campaigns manager at the time of um, um, GMFA, which is now LGBT Hero, and they they were working on campaigns to try to get more black men to get tested. So. I guess initially was um initially the I guess the first step of the journey was meeting Mark and Will at Black Pride and being interested in what they're doing. But then Mark invited me to like um a planning discussion around um this campaign and what it could be and it, how it was around um trying to motivate black men in particular to get tested. And then um I was going to those meetings and then I was like contributing and I think it was at that moment that like I realized like I'm actually really good at this. Like, I'm really <laughs> good at this and that this is something that I could do. So I ended up um, co-developing that campaign, um, doing a lot of the messaging around it, um, getting people that I knew um, like to to star in it, like alongside me and all of that. And then it ended up being like really successful and kind of a springboard into a lot of the work that I do. Um, it opened the doors for me to be on more discussion panels, to write more articles um, and to like, I guess, uh, be interviewed about the stuff that I do. and. Um, yeah, it's just, I think that's kind of, I, I always refer to that one because it was like the one that kind of set everything off. It, it was a really great campaign. I remember that one. Uh, but in your opinion, what was it that made that a successful campaign? What was it about that that sort of had the sort of cut through that maybe other campaigns hadn't? I think it was timing. I think it came out at a time where like, I guess there was more of a kind of, I want to say like a renaissance of like black queer arts black queer like books black queer podcasts like and it came out around that time like i um but i also feel like um a lot of the time and um i'm not trying to throw shade to any organizations i'm not going to mention any in particular say their names say but, their names <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of organizations um they tend to not involve the people from the communities they're trying to reach. It seems like such a basic thing, doesn't it? But like, you've got so many you examples no where idea. it hasn't happened. <laughs> you have no idea. So like a lot of the time, um, people that are not from the communities they're trying to reach are trying to reach people from other communities. So hypothetically, around this campaign, it was mostly me and Mark that did a lot of the work around it. And the campaign's manager did a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And um, Liam Murphy, he won't take a lot of credit for a lot of the work that he did because he said this was like your 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 project and your thing. But he he understood the importance of making sure that black gay men were like kind of in charge of like the, the messaging behind it that were in charge of like the, the kind of production and the pre-planning and all of those things. And I think that's what made it so successful because it was a authentic um, piece of work. I think a lot of the time um, there are campaigns where 
you look at them and you can see, you can see there was no black people involved in this besides having to stand in front of the camera. Just say the words, yeah. <laughs> you know, do the thing, but like, uh, it just, it can, it can come across like that. And I think I remember as I was doing the campaign, it was like, um, I grew up with a lot of straight black men. And I also now, uh, or at the time, I guess both, um, I still have like a lot of like black gay friends. So it was like, I knew how kind of both kind of mentalities would work. And then I thought, it shouldn't be something that's too graphic if we want to, um, if like, well, not maybe not too graphic, but if we want to do something that like appeals to to black gay men that maybe or black queer men that aren't out, it should be something that's kind of suggested as opposed to something that's like very full on or directly says these is the words like gay and stuff like that. So, I think just having that kind of background and that knowledge of how uh, black men operate, like whether like gay or straight, it kind of helped me to like. Put, like create something that would work for both um, um, communities. And you mentioned that it was during this project, the, the Me Here Mouse campaign, that you realised that this was something that you're good at. Mm. What do you think it is that makes you good at this kind of stuff? Well, I think partially because there's not really that many black gay men doing it. <laughs> so it was, there's that. But I don't know. It just, I think it was like, um, I got diagnosed with ADHD in 2021. And I think like, uh, in a way, I think this kind of helped with a lot of that in a, because I had like a focus. I had something that I was really passionate about. I had something that I woke up every day that excited me, that made me think like, what can I do? What campaigns can I do? What articles can I write? And that excitement, I guess, helped me to be more focused and more streamlined in the types of things that I do with my career. I think prior to that, like, I think what I, I did the campaign um, at 27, I think it came out just before I turned 28 or around 28. And like, it was just, um, I don't know how to describe it. It just, it just came so naturally to me and it just felt like things were so easy. Like I was like, obviously this is how it should go. Obviously this is what we should say. Obviously this is how it should look. And it just felt very, I don't know. I just felt like how, how is this not happening elsewhere at other organizations and maybe even bigger organizations that have more money like why why aren't we doing this why aren't like black gay men if black gay men have the highest rates of hiv worldwide why don't we have black gay men creating campaigns and like it seems so simple <laughs> it seems but obvious yeah <laughs> it's very obvious but like yeah it just i don't know i just it just came really naturally to me i think because i'm naturally a creative person i'm someone um i'm a writer so i'm like i'm good with words and i helped with messaging and i also then simultaneously used my social media to then share everything that i did or promote everything that I did or try to get that into like um, particular communities, get my friends to share stuff, get my friends to be involved in things. And it just, I, it just happens so naturally and so easily. Putting that ADHD to work. <laughs> yes. I didn't, I didn't know I was for like another four years. <laughs> you often mention that people don't expect you to be tall, that they might know you just off social media and then they meet you in person and they realize that you're like Jacob Elordi tall. Have you always been the <laughs> tallest kid in your class growing up? Um, yeah, I think um, it was really weird because in secondary school, I was like slightly, I think from, I think maybe year five, so about like 10, 11, I've always been like a slightly above average height, like not massively. And then um, I hit puberty and then I remember hitting 14 and I literally went inwards and upwards. I went in, I was really tall and really thin. Um, and I've always been really tall. And I think apparently I tweet like I'm short. It's <laughs> short energy tweets. What's that? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's like, I don't, I, it's like, I I don't know. Like, I just tweet like I'm not, like I don't have this. Massive... 
whatever. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but like everyone is always really surprised. And I don't know why. It's like everyone assumes that I'm going to be short for some reason. I, I have no idea what it comes from. Besides me, maybe tweeting like I'm short. But I think um, because I've been tall, and I don't want to say for a long time because it sounds silly, but I, I was tall from quite a young age. Like I was like 6'2 at like 15, 16. And I'm 6'5 now. Um, I remember when I stopped growing and I was like, thank God, because I don't <laughs> what a relief like, honestly because it was like when does this end i remember I, I was about 19 and i realized it stopped so i was like thank you jesus <laughs> like what is this you know um but like um basically people always think that i'm sure and i think like basically because i've been tall for such a long time um and from a young age i think people have seen me annoyed or like or, i mean automatically assumed i'm gonna rob them or stab them <laughs> or like do something bad what? because like my, my height my height intimidates people so i think I've then, and I probably have a bit of a complex on it, but I've then gone the other way around to be like super, try to be super approachable or not, not, I try not try to put that across. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. So I think, I think it's that. So then I think that comes into like how I then speak to people, how I navigate the world and not trying to make a big deal out of being tall. There's um, there's a guy on my Instagram that is my height, he's 6'5", on Twitter, sorry. And he mentions being six five in every picture that he posts, <laughs> like random tweets, like and it's like we, we get it, like and I, I never wanted to be like that, you know. But you talk about how you sort of hit adolescence, hit puberty, and had that growth spurt. Have you always been sort of you know comfortable in your skin? What's your relationship been with your body like over those years? Um, I've I I felt super awkward in my body for a long time, for a really long time, and it's interesting because I'm not like that at all now. Um, I think like I just remember I, I I feel like when you're in secondary school and you're queer and you know you're queer, you try to do your best to like not stand out or not draw attention to yourself or anything like and that. And here's you and, um, being tall. Here's me being like six foot two at like fifteen. So it's like no matter what I do, like everyone is seeing me, you know? So um basically uh I used to feel really awkward in my body. I used to feel cause it was like I I couldn't express my queerness. Um, and I couldn't do it in a way that was safe for me. And um, I remember after I came out, I think I came out in tw- uh, between the, t- the years 2012 and 2014. I think 2014 was like the end of it, the beginning of 2014. And one of my straight friends from that school was like, if you came out during school, we wouldn't be friends now. And I was like, that's exactly why I didn't do it. Yeah, that is why I did not come out. Uh, this is yeah, so like- <laughs> I, I, I like, I, I, I think um, for a lot of queer men, their experiences in school is that they were bullied for being like effeminate or they were bullied for like um, not liking sports or all these sorts of things but thankfully I wasn't bullied um and um I think I had a lot of internal issues because I was I kept my 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 queerness my sexuality my desires all to myself so I suffered a lot in silence as opposed to suffering in silence and then having external forces telling me I'm this I'm that or whatever but um in, in terms of my relationship with my body I used to feel really awkward and really uncomfortable because I didn't want to be tall I didn't want to stand out and I didn't feel confident, but I think that confidence really mostly came as soon as I started like dating men and um, kind of coming into myself. So that that was a journey that I went on through, like, I guess my my teenage years, late teens to my early 20s. It was only to my early 20s where I started to feel a lot more confident in myself and in my body. And hilariously, there's a picture that I used to use on Grindr before I put my picture, my face up. And I'm like, wow, 2012 me was snatched. Like, honestly, my body was great. And I didn't realize that at the time. It's so funny. You should have taken more pictures then and put them everywhere. Yeah. 
very much. <laughs> now, uh, can we talk about your relationship with KFC? Because you often mention that it's your ultimate comfort food. And I was yeah. just wondering, when did that start? And why is KFC your thing? I think it started in secondary school. Because I, I feel like there's a, there's a moment in, in like every person's life where like you realize you you um kind of you move up from a happy meal to like a, a like a Big Mac meal. The growth, isn't it? Like... <laughs> yeah, but like um, I'm, it's hilarious because my sister is complaining about my niece who she's twelve in um she's twelve in June and she's done that transition and my sister was so pissed about it because she's like, when did this happen? Now she's, me more she's gone past yeah. the happy meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I remember like like things like um McDonald's never filled me like I could like a Big Mac meal was never like enough. And even like if I was to I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't order from there because of like the boycotts and stuff. And I haven't actually gotten KFC as much as I as I used to for the same reason. Um but like I feel like with McDonald's you can like with a Big Mac meal, for example, it's like I'm still hungry. And like, I feel like whenever I got a meal from KFC, because there's like more sides, there's more bits and pieces, more added like additions. It's like, it was more filling. It's the full And meal. that's where it cutting out. Yeah. That's where it started. <laughs> I think that's kind of where it started in my teenager. I just realized that KFC, you might spend a little bit more money, but you're getting a lot more like bang for your buck. And then it started with that. And then it just became this thing where I'm now well known for it on, on Twitter. Yeah, I, like I remember the it was KFC a, ambassador. Yeah, there's um there is three of us. There's like um there's a KFC Twitter going on with like a CEO <laughs> and But like I think it also um like I remember being known for it at uni as well. Like like people knew me at uni for loving KFC. It's been part of your brand for a while. It's been part of my brand for a while. But I I I if controversially I don't have it as much as I used to. I don't. Um, there is the the boycott for one, but just generally, I think I'm I'm slowly growing out of it. I think like also a lot of um a lot of the last two or three years, I've been like in the gym a lot and like working out and body, and I, I think I've just naturally moved away from it. However, I will say um to the listeners out there, if you do get KFC, the new chips are banging. So there's that. <laughs> Not a sponsored product. I feel like KFC owe me a lot of money. I've yeah. I've, I've promote them for a long time yeah for free but then I, I don't know how it works with being a health promoter and then promoting junk food so uh, i don't know well speaking of health issues and stuff what are, what are some of the biggest health issues currently facing queer men in london i think at the moment um there's a, a lot of a big issue around stis within younger queer men ah. yeah i i have this theory and i can't i mean there's no research based on it but i i, I always use this but i feel like there is um, Gen X that kind of lived through the HIV epidemic. And then uh, millennials kind of inherited the the fear and anxiety around contracting HIV because um, we were alive, I guess, whilst it was happening. But then Gen Z have an entirely different relationship when it comes to HIV and STIs in general. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so because um, because of things like you equals you, which is um, undetectable equals untransmittable, and like how people living with HIV can't pass on um, the virus um, as long as they're taking their medication. And because of things like PrEP, where, um, as I said, you know, people can't really contract HIV. Because of those things, those have come into like, I guess, Gen Z's awareness, like in their, I, I would say maybe childhoods, early teens, late teens. So by the time in, if they're at that point, let's say in their early twenties or mid twenties, they're like experimenting or meeting um, queer people. 
their their relationship with HIV is just not what mine was. Yeah. Because they've always had available they've always had access to things like prep or they've always had access to um you cause you. But I feel like they have less of an understanding of their history. Like I feel like any millennial will tell you, even if like loosely, they'll say the the AIDS epidemic was bad, um, this sort of happened, da, 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 it happened in the eighties and the night they'll have it like whereas I feel like Gen Z don't have as much and i'm not trying to say everyone because obviously some people no, have sure. their quit but it's like a post-transmission era almost isn't it like with yeah. you know, treatment as prevention and you know and, and prep as you were talking about we're just in a different headspace aren't we and it's hard to sort of reconcile that but on top of that there's also like a very different amount of um um representation and visibility of queerness and like queer stories so for example i guess um you think back to um when i was younger there was thing that um the the queer the queer men that i i didn't necessarily look up to but the queer men that existed in the uk were people like um it's all it's funny because it's all like george's and michael's but um boy george george michael um elton john um off the top of my head um who else who else graham norton graham norton you know um they're all white gay men yeah when i was younger i understood that i was queer but I was like, I'm not like that, you know, ah, because yeah, yeah. it's not like me. So I yeah. didn't have that representation. Whereas now kind of going back to that kind of um, a black res renaissance that's kind of happened, been happening in the UK for a little while. It's kind of a resurgence of the sort of stuff that was happening in the 80s when it came to music and to um, to art. I feel like there's more access to like, let's say, black queer people on podcasts, on YouTube, talking about their experiences, on social media, just existing. There's more books, there's more art. So it's like, there's more access to being queer and it's like a lot more normalized and it's not as demonized as it was when even I was a teenager. So because of that, I feel like young queer people then don't have as much awareness around HIV or what it is, or even if they do, they're kind of like, yeah, well, I'll just take a pill every day and it'll be fine. Like, it's not a big issue. Yeah, <laughs> Whereas yeah. it was such a life altering thing for like the two generations above them. So yeah. definitely sexual health overall is an issue for young queer people. I would say um, mental health, absolutely. For everyone. <laughs> everyone, yes. <laughs> but like, I feel like there was a generation of um, like young people that lost a lot of their, their youth in the pandemic. Yeah. So say for example, um, four years ago, like let's say 18 year olds that are now in uni, they were like in year 10 when this happened. You know, and I think that their social skills are very different because of how prominent social media is. So that's a whole other different situation. But I would say mental health. Um, I, I think um, mental health and sexual health are probably my top two. I guess my final question is what's on your agenda for the coming months? What are some of your goals and aspirations or things you're getting excited about working on? Um, so I guess um, work-wise, I'm working on, I don't know if I can talk about this, but it's fine. Did you sign an NDA? If there's no NDA, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm currently working on my own podcast, actually. So um, nice I'm currently, currently working on a podcast at work. Um, and it's kind of talking about how we managed to get NHS, um, NHS, how we managed to get prep on the NHS. Because um, I think a lot of people don't know a lot of what people went through in order to get it. And there's a lot of like unheard voices and untold stories from from this. So, for example, National AIDS Trust um, sued NHS England twice um, because um, NHS England said that basically HIV prevention is not a responsibility. So we don't have to pay for it. And lots of people don't know that. For example, that's just one aspect. But there's lots of people and lots of like people we haven't heard of or heard from 
when it comes to how we managed to get prep on the NHS and how vital they were to that. So I'm having fun like working on that. It's really difficult, but I'm enjoying it. And um, I think um, personally, I think like I would like to do something like some more creative things. I feel like um, this podcast has been great because it's been an opportunity to be more creative. But like, I feel like sometimes I I struggle with like accessing that. And I think I, I would like to do more writing and I'd like to like do something creative and potentially, I, I, I don't know at which point, because I always say this, but potentially take a break from um, like sexual health and like focusing something on creatively. But then I, I know that from how I am and from the work that I've done, sexual health will always come into whatever I do. Even um, I, I wrote a chapter for a book and um, the chapter was called um, Condomless Sex. So like whatever I do is always connected to, <laughs> like I can't help it. You got to talk about what you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. You can find me on Twitter at GTV London. Today's guest has been Phil Samba. You can find him on Twitter at Idiosyncratic XL. Stay naked, stay sexy, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>